6, 5, 4. You are listening to the 542 in the Blue podcast. Discussions of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police sergeant and detective. Author and researcher. We start today's podcast with a brief musical ballad, telling the story of a tragic event from the Appalachian Mountains. 3, 2, 1. The Death of Merle Baldridge. Written and composed by Nora E. Carpenter. 1940. Have you heard the sad, sad story? It happened in the month of June. Merle Baldridge met with tragedy while in her youth and Sweet day, we'll go 
What you have just heard is a song sung and recorded by Nora Carpenter at her home in Sailorville, Kentucky on 7 7 of 1972. The song speaks of the 1949 murder of Muriel Baldridge, which is today's shade of blue, 4542 in the blue. Alice, thank you for helping us get this started and putting everything together. We are talking about a murder case today that happened in Prestonburg, Kentucky, 70-some years ago. On the evening of Monday, June 27, 1949, Muriel Baldridge, a 17-year-old Prestonburg High School cheerleader, attended a carnival with three of her girlfriends in Prestonburg, Kentucky. They skipped out on a church event. Later that evening, Muriel and her girlfriends walked home. They separated at a West Prestonburg Bridge across the Big Sandy River. Muriel continued walking across the bridge alone, heading home. At some point before she got home, she was abducted and assaulted by an unknown person or persons. Screams were reported in the neighborhood that night, but the actual crime was unseen. On Tuesday, June 28, her body, badly beaten, was found on the riverbank below the West Prestonburg Bridge. She was killed with several smashing fatal blows to the head. Her body found a little over 50 feet away from her parents' home. Beside the body were several footprints on the ground and an 8-inch lead pipe, as well as an empty whiskey bottle near the bridge. A necklace found later hung in a small peach tree that had been uprooted also on the riverbank. Investigators believe the victim was assaulted under the bridge and drugged down the path beside the river. During the initial investigation, a 15-year-old carnival worker claimed that he saw another carnival worker kill the victim. But two weeks later, he said he had made a story up about witnessing the murder. Two weeks later, he changed his story again back Two, he had witnessed the murder. Then a week later, he again recanted. The original murder investigation lasted nearly a year. The investigation included everything from truth serum, lie detector tests by the Pinkerton Detective Agency, interrogations, and jailbreaks. Two people, one, our carnival worker, and a young man from a prominent Pike County family confessed to killing Miss Baldridge, but quickly withdrew or redacted their statements. At one point, a William Gamble, 26-year-old carnival worker, confessed that he and Olin Collins, a 15-year-old, were taken to Cincinnati for lie detector questioning. Collins was the original carnival acquaintance of Gamble and he had first accused him of the murder uh, back in July. He claimed he was with Gamble on the night of the killing. Gamble's confession also implicated that uh, Collins was there. Collins later withdrew the statement, signing another statement and swearing to it that Gamble had threatened his life if he told of the slaying, quote, you little SOB, if you tell it and I get close to you, I'll kill you. Collins is quoted, 
in court records. Campbell went through three days of questioning and lie detector tests, maintaining that he was innocent. In his one-time confession, he disclosed no motive for the slaying, according to a Mr. Sackman, head of the Cincinnati Pinkerton Detective Agency, who assisted and took part in the questioning. Now, I wasn't able to locate any reference in court records or documents anywhere that referred to the results of the polygraph test. So I'm not sure how the polygraph test came out. But as you will see, we'll talk some more about that. Gamble denied any sexual intentions in his one confession. The coroner's jury stated that the girl had actually not been sexually assaulted. Gamble had been picked up in Virginia and was charged with murder on July 29th after he had been picked up by the state police there on a charge of auto theft. The Collins boy was held as a material witness but was to be charged with murder according to the district attorney. The boy insisted he was just an innocent spectator, that the pair were taken back to Kentucky but not to Prestonburg, according to the sheriff at the time, in a newspaper article. He, of course, was worried about a lynching again or something along those lines. When the victim was buried in July of 1949, businesses in the, her hometown and the school closed down for the day. Over 3,500 people were reported to have attended the funeral, which is powerful because there were only 1,200 citizens in that particular mountain community. Many vows of vengeance were also swore as she was laid to rest. A newspaper article at the time stated, quote, the headline, Mountain people want Gamble to get justice from the law or otherwise. Then the newspaper article quoted the mayor, If the law don't give him justice, he'll get it anyway, unquote. That was the reaction voiced by Prestonburg's mayor, E.P. Arnold, the Eastern Kentucky mountain people who learned of William Gamble that he had confessed to the brutal slaying of Muriel were wanting justice. The mayor continued, We mountain people have had our crimes before, our crimes in heat and passion, our feuds, and our feuds, said Mayor Arnold, but never before has a young girl, a proper young girl of good's family, been killed by a stranger. Mayor Arnold said he believed a special grand jury would be called immediately to indict Gamble. The quicker we get this over with now, the better, he said. The quicker Gamble goes to the electric chair, the better. That's how folks feel here. They have been riled up ever since the girl was killed. People believe him guilty. Now we don't encourage violence. The law, we're sure, will give Gamble justice. But if it doesn't, he said, Gamble will get it anyway. That girl has three brothers here. I wonder what would happen if they were turned loose on Gamble. Now, going back to our confessions. In one of the confessions, the 15-year-old boy stated he was crossing the bridge in a car with 26-year-old William Gamble. The statement was a bit confusing when it was made, but when the police picked up Gamble at one point, he confessed. Days later, Gamble denied the statement, saying he had made it only because the police in Cincinnati had kept food from him, made threats of harming him unless he confessed. The 15-year-old young man said he had made the story up to get even with Gamble, who had, quote, been mean to him. The Floyd County Grand Jury took no action on Gamble and the 15-year-old after indictments were presented and no indictments came. 
The Cincinnati police ended up turning the carnival worker over to authorities in Hazard, Kentucky, where he was wanted on a burglary charge. Now, a year later, more investigation by the state police and the sheriff, a different sheriff this time, led to indictments of two other men. One of those men was a member of the Board of Education. The other was a neighbor of the victim. The trial had to be moved from Floyd County to nearby Pike County for safety purposes and in hopes that the gentleman would get a fair trial. It was no particular comfort to the defense to find out that the family or the people of Prestonburg had hired a special prosecutor, a Mr. John Young Brown, who was a former congressman and was noted in Lexington, Kentucky as a very good attorney. They requested and he was granted to be made special prosecutor in this case. The opening of the trial found the courthouse in that mountain town heavily guarded. The Board of Education member was the first person to go on trial and he was facing the death penalty. This was a 60-year-old Lon Moles who was arrested and placed in jail. Moles was a big power man in the town. For 25 years, he had been a member of the city school board. For 10 of those years, he had been chairman of the school board. For 36 years, he had been station agent for the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad, which incidentally was the same railroad that Muriel's father worked for as a section foreman. Mole's office was actually in the West Station that was directly across the tracks from Muriel's home. He had watched Muriel grow up from a gangling kid into a pretty young woman who, prov- who ran, according to testimony, to the station several times a day to use the payphone there. Also, Evidence collected at this crime scene shown that the size of the footprint was an eight or nine size shoe. Moles wore an average eight or nine shoe. He was also a regular known drinker of four roses whiskey when he could get it. This was the same bottle of whiskey or type of whiskey that was found at the crime scene. And folks testified to the fact in the trial that he owned a 45 caliber Colt. The second suspect had to be brought in from Ohio, but before he could be arrested in Ohio, his family managed to bring him back to town where he was arrested. He was actually managing a farm for his parents in Ohio, but he was a 44-year-old bachelor who for many years had run a restaurant and a taxi business and lived just two doors down from the victim and her family. After the homicide, he moved to Ohio circumstantial yes interesting yes as well most of the attention seemed to be aimed at the older moles most of the attention seemed to be aimed at the older moles subject he explained in the local press it's political it's a frame-up he also voiced this loudly in the courtroom people are jealous of my job and my position on the school board interesting Opening testimony set the time of death around 10 p.m. the night of June 27th. One young lady, Gail Hamilton, who had been with the victim prior to the leaving her at the bridge, testified through tears. That was the night she left us. 
Miss Sybil Moore, the other young lady, agreed, testified we wanted to walk across the bridge with her, but she said she wasn't afraid to cross alone and went on to walk by herself home. The three had spent late Monday afternoon and early evening at a softball game, in a drugstore, at a short movie, and then at the carnival. On their way to the bridge, a man in a car tried to pick them up, they testified to. But even that, according to their testimony, didn't frighten our 17-year-old cheerleader. Another young lady, 15-year-old neighbor, Betty Lou Tackett, just two hours before, and a friend of hers were walking home from the carnival when they saw a tall man and a short man crossing the street to intercept the girls being nervous crossed the street to the other side. The men followed. The girls crossed again. The men once more came to their side of the road. The 15-year-old testified, we finally ran and they chased us. Her friend stayed the night and later, sometime after 10 o'clock, the girls were lying in bed reading comic books. And, quote, we heard awful screams, which sounded like they came from the edge of the bridge. Betty Lou had told her, the investigators, this. Later, the screams came again. They convinced themselves that the screams and the cries were from a hurt dog. Looking out the window, one of the girls observed a man in a pale yellow sports shirt hurried out onto the bridge and started across. He ducked behind a pillar as the motorcycle went by. Then he ran across the bridge, stopping once to look over the side. Then a minute later, he came back across the bridge slowly. I couldn't see him when he got away from the center of the bridge where there was light, but I could hear his footsteps. It sounded like he stopped at the edge of the bridge near the little path leading to where her body was found. Too frightened to sleep, the young girl sat at the window for two more hours but heard nothing else. Now other people in the neighborhood and close by also testified that they heard the screaming. On cross-examination by the defense, the girls were asked, were the men who chased you young or old? I don't know was the answer. And the witnesses could not identify Moles as being one of those individuals. Question, according to court documents, did you know Mr. Moles? Answer, I didn't then. Question, how does the man in the yellow shirt you saw run across the bridge compare with Mr. Moles? He was different. He was bigger than Mr. Moles is. That boosted the defense's position a great deal. The coroner, Dr. Arnett, testified as to the footprints he found along the riverbank, and footprints were made by a shoe of basically the same size moles could have worn. Unfortunately for both sides, defense and prosecution, no casts were made of those prints. Continuing with the testimony, prosecution asked where these footprints disappeared was the spot Mr. Moles worked. The answer, a only a little piece. State Detective Thompson testified that he had been looking for a man who drank four rows whiskey, wore a size eight or nine shoe, and owned a 45 caliber automatic in his possession on the night of June 27th. Thompson had come up with his last clue after examining Muriel's head wounds. He had thought he recognized the marks on the body or on the head, 
and he took various handguns and hit soft, thick pieces of cardboard with the butts of these handguns. When he used a 45 Colt, the marks in the cardboard were very, very similar to those in the young lady's scalp. The next witness, a Julia Godsey, who declared that on the night of June 27th, she and Grade Walters were selling bootleg liquor in Grade's, quote, liquor joint. Julia testified that at 9 o'clock that night, Moles, wearing a yellowish-looking shirt, bought a bottle of Four Rose liquor from her. At midnight, he came back for another bottle, and he said, Don't turn on the light, Julia. But when he gave her a $20 bill and she had to make change, she had to turn on the light. She testified that she saw blood on the front right shoulder of his yellow shirt. Prosecution asked, how much blood? Her answer, a right smart of it. Julia's husband, Clyde Godsey, testified that Moles came in at 4 o'clock in the morning for a third bottle. He was then wearing a gray shirt with the sleeves rolled up and there were scratches on his arms. At 9 o'clock in the morning, three hours after Muriel's body had been discovered, Moles returned for the fourth time. According to the testimony of Julia, Clyde, and Walters, all three of them, according to the bootleggers, Moles asked if anyone else had bought Four Rose Whiskey that night, and they said no. He then proceeded to tell them about the empty bottle being found, the body. Then added, remember, I wasn't here last night. Weeks later, Moles told Julia if she was brought before the grand jury to say he was in her place on the 26th, but not on the night of the killing. The defense attorney, of course, attacked the reputations of each of the bootleggers, but he was unable to shake their testimony. They continued to maintain what they saw and what Mr. Moles supposedly did. A Mr. Goble, local filling station attendant, also testified that on the day the body was found, Moles had him remove the seat covers from his car. One of the covers had a big spot on it which seemed to have been recently cleaned. Another witness for the prosecution, high school teacher Bob Shepard, testified that the afternoon of June 28th, he found Moles and his car in a ditch. Moles had many scratches and cuts on his arms. By his questioning, the prosecutor tried to bring across the idea that the accident might have been arranged to hide scratches inflicted some hours earlier. The state held back a few important witnesses for rebuttal of the defendant's testimony, a fact which the confident defendant did not know about when he took the stand. Now, Mole said he left the softball game at 9.15 on the night of June 27th. Again, this is the same game the girls had attended. He went directly to his house, put on his pajamas, read for a while, then went to sleep. He woke up at 4 a.m. and went to work. Going home to breakfast at 6, he saw, quote, the jam under the bridge and learned about the murder. He did not go to the bootlegging joint on that night, but he did go there 
at 9 a.m. to ask if they had sold any Four Rose whiskey, having heard about the Four Rose whiskey bottle through the grapevine. Apparently, he was doing his own detective work, saying that he had hoped to use the information to trace the murderer. At no time did he warn the bootleggers not to talk about him. Those scratches on his arms, he said he'd fallen into some stubble in Briars several days before. Court testimony documents that the prosecution asked him, quote, question, did he own a 45 automatic? His answer, not since 1943. Question, did you and E.K. Dotson ever have a talk about harming that girl? Answer, never. Question, did you harm that girl in any way? I mean, did you kill her or injure her? Answer, I did not. His denial was very firm, quiet, and convincing. He handled himself very well on direct examination, and he continued to make unruffled answers under the sarcastic examination of Special Prosecutor Brown. He did not tell anyone he had been up all night on June 27th or had bought whiskey. Leaving the stand and going back to his seat, he flushed and stared across the courtroom as a parade of prosecution witnesses some of them, men who had known him for over 30 years, swore on the Bible that his morality, reputation, was bad, to say the least. In summation, the defense pointed out that the, to the citizens of Prestonburg that they had made a mistake, and it was an honest mistake, in accusing moles. The bootleggers had lied and could not be trusted, for after all, they were bootleggers. Mole's wife, Elizabeth, suffering arthritis and recovering from a broken hip, limped to the stand to help her husband's defense. She testified that on the afternoon of June 27th, Lon came home at 5 o'clock for supper. He wasn't drunk and he wasn't sober, just halfway between. Isn't that a great thing to say in court? He stayed home until he went to the softball game. He returned to his house at 9.30, she testified. She knew the time because she listened to a certain radio program on Monday nights, and it had started after Lon, her husband, arrived home. She saw him put on his pajamas and saw him reading in bed. Then she went to bed. She heard him snoring. Now, on cross-examination, Brown got Mrs. Moles to admit that she and her husband occupied separate bedrooms and that he could have come and gone from the house without her knowledge. Brown's sarcasm took on a special edge when Miss Moles, who knew her husband's exact schedule of sleep for the night of June 27th, yet couldn't tell when or if he went to bed on June 26th or June 28th. In closing, the special prosecutor called down the wrath of the jurors and Almighty God upon Moles. He may not have intended to kill that girl when he, in his drunken stupor, met her that night, but Muriel had a big, strong father and strapping brothers, and he had to kill her. Now go out, Brown roared at the jurors, and bringing in the kind of verdict this terrible crime demands. While the jury was out, the state asked that the indictment of Dotson 
be squashed for lack of evidence as he had actually turned state's evidence. At around 8 p.m., after a two-hour deliberation by the jurors, they reported themselves deadlocked. Actually, they, act- they stood 11 to 1 for acquittal because 11 of them couldn't convict a man without eyewitness who could tie him to the murder. The judge sent them home, and in the morning, when the jurors came back, it only took 23 minutes to win over the one female holdout on the jury. People approached Muriel's father to express sympathy that Moles had been found not guilty. We didn't get justice, her dad said. The railroad will have to move Moles or me. Just the thought of seeing him there so close day after day, and then he fell silent. At the end of the trial, the Floyd County Times printed that the case was, quote, probably the most bizarre and confusing in the annuals of Eastern Kentucky crime. Today, the murder of the 17-year-old cheerleader is still unsolved. New evidence and theories has come to light over the years, 1955, 1960, 1962, but nothing that they could take to court. But it is still an open investigation. With that thought, we end this particular sad shade of blue. Thank you to my producer. Don't forget to check out my website, scottlunsfordauthor.com, where you can pick up copies of my books, as well as on amazon.com, in particularly the latest book, Cop and Copperhead, number three in the Asheville Cop series. Once more, dealing with the history of our area and sprinkling a little modernness in there and a little folklore and a little reality as well and i hope you enjoy that so i'm going to turn it over to alice be safe be secure three two you have been listening to the 542 in the blue podcast discussions of law enforcement history issues and incidents in the appalachian mountains hosted by scott lunsford for more information on this podcast Go to Scott Lunsford, author.com. A link to the podcast webpage and information on Scott's books and how to order them. Scott can also be reached through the message portal on the contact page. This is Alice, your podcast producer. One. End. <laughs>